this morning we're going to dive into something a little different. We're going to stay in this series this morning. And we're going to focus on a, a different element uh, that I want to sort of highlight uh, about this series. Uh, as you guys know, we've been in the series Devoted, and it's a series uh, about explaining and understanding what the scriptures talk about as why it is that we must love the church. If we are a Christian and if we have professed Christ and we've heard the gospel and believed in Christ, we have an opportunity and a responsibility to be a part of the local church and to be the church and to participate in the church and to love the church. And so this series is focused on the reasons why we must consider this thing to be of utmost importance in the life of the church. So I want to pray, and then we're just going to dive in. So Father, I just thank you for your word this morning. God, I thank you for the revelation that you've given us. God, I thank you that you have shown us the mysteries of your will. Father, I, we know that some of your will is hidden and that we do not know and we do not understand everything about what you're doing. And we must be okay with that. But what you have revealed to us, Lord God, your will that you have revealed in your word, God, we thank you for. And God, we pray, Lord, that as we... As we um, as we, uh, as we give our minds and our hearts to this word this morning, God, that it would, you would in every way reveal in greater measure your will that you have given us through your word. God, that you would draw us into your heart. God, that we would be able to understand in greater ways, Lord God, what you're doing. God, that the gospel of Christ, Lord, would be explained in greater ways, Lord, that when we declare the word of God and we hear the word of God declared, Lord, God, that it would be a transformative work in us. God, that it would draw us into um, uh, more joy. God, it would create in us a sense of peace. God, it would eliminate anxiety. God, that it would battle depression, uneasiness, Lord God, maybe this word declared this morning should bring conviction. Lord, I pray, God, that there needs to be repentance for sin this morning, that, God, your word would accomplish that in the hearts of the believers here assembled for, to worship you. Lord, I pray that if people need to be encouraged, that you would encourage them this morning through the power of your word. God, I pray that you would stimulate faith this morning. God, I pray that you would grow Lord, in, that we would grow in faith this morning. God, I pray that we would be nourished by this word. Lord, I pray that we would feed upon it and it would satisfy our spiritual desires to know you and to love you and to worship you. And so I pray, Father, that all things, Lord God, that you have determined to accomplish this morning that you would do through the power of your declared word. Father, we love you, and we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy this morning, if you want to turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, we're going to kind of hang out in there for a couple weeks, I think, around there in 1 Timothy. Uh, but I want, to, I want to have you guys get there first before we, um, before we um, read it and we kind of work through it this morning. But um, we are in our third week 
of this series, and uh, I hope that so far that this has been a blessing to you. I hope that in some way and in some manner that what we have covered um, in these last two weeks um, has caused God and the Holy Spirit that lives in you to, to bring a greater understanding of who he is and, and a greater understanding of why you must love the church and why you must be de devoted and committed to the local body of the church. Um, and so this morning, we, uh, we're going to look at a little bit of a different feature. But I want to start by just saying this, and I kind of mentioned this last week in, in some ways, that the Christian call um, of love and devotion to the church is, is not simply just something that we have an opportunity to do. Um, but it's something that's forged in a sense of duty and responsibility then it's not an option or an opportunity that we can either decide to afford or not to afford in our lives. But it is something that he has called us into, and it's forged in a sense of duty and honor and responsibility and commitment to Christ. He has essentially not afforded us the discretion not to be a part of the church. Our love and devotion to the church is not a matter of choice. It's not a matter of choice, branded by convenience, but it resides in a resolute and committed advancing of God's kingdom through a divine desire. And that is given to us by the Holy Spirit when we are born again. This is something that is not optional. The, the participation and devotion to Christ's church is essential to our nourishment, to our maturity, to our training. That is why we must love the church. Christ's church provides the core elements. When we gather this morning and when we worship God and we sing songs and when we pray over one another and when we minister to each other and when we hear the word of God declared and explained and we understand these are the core elements that can only lead to the Christian's growth. It is how we are set apart. It is how we become devoted to Christ in our participation in the body of Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at um, the second part of our structure. As you guys know, we're kind of breaking this down into three, three different segments. Um, and so the first two weeks, we've looked at the source of the church. What is the source of the church? And why does the source of the church matter when it comes to being devoted and committed to the church? And we looked at the source of the church being Christ. We looked at the foundation of the church being Christ. We looked at Christ as the one who builds the church, and he's the one he builds it on. It is undeniable. The reality of God's word is that Jesus Christ has presented himself as the singular, identifiable source and foundation of the church. Look at a couple of the texts that we looked at uh, a couple of weeks ago, last week and the week before. Matthew chapter 16, 18 says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So Christ is responsible for building the church, and Christ is the foundation for which is laid upon. Christ is building the church. It is not up to men to build the church. It is not up to me and you to build the church. It's not up to the wisdom of men or the gimmicks of men or the strategies of men to build the church. 
Christ is building the church, and we are an essential part of that process. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 11, we looked at this last week, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ. The church cannot be laid on another foundation other than Christ. If, if men want to lay a foundation on men, then that is not the church. That is a club or a cult. <laughs> Whatever you want to choose. But the true church shall not prosper, nor can it grow, if it is built on anything but the eternal and divine person and work of Christ. The foundation of the church is built by and laid upon him. And so that's what we've covered over the last couple of weeks. This morning, we're going to look at the substance. Why does the substance of the church matter to our participation? Why should the substance of the church motivate us and provoke us to be participants and committed people devoted to the building of Christ's church? What is it about the substance that we must understand that causes us to have this divinely oriented commitment to the substance or to the, to the, the building up of Christ's assembly? So if we are to look at the substance, I want us to consider it in these ways. I want us to consider the content of the church. I want us to consider the importance of the church. I want us to consider the essence of the church and the benefits of the church and the significance of the church. And we're not going to look at these singularly, but I want this to kind of frame our understanding of substance. What is substance when we think of the substance of the church? It is what makes up the church. What is important? How is, how is the church and the expression of the church and what it offers different than anything else that we can receive in the world? And the essence of it, what is it essentially made of? And how does it benefit? And how is it singularly significant apart from anything else we participate in our lives? These are kind of the things that I want us to be thinking about as we think about substance. So the first element I want us to focus on this week is this idea of the truth. And it's so interesting that Karen came up and shared that word, that testimony this morning about being anchored in truth and how that can, in many ways in our lives, overcome everything. It overcomes our feelings of fear. It overcomes our feelings of anxiousness and our feelings of, you know, anxiety and all of these things. And we've had testimonies uh, how God has delivered people this morning from those things. And it is the truth of God's word that thoroughly and, and perfectly can address all of those needs that we have as a Christian. And so the reason why we must love the church is because the substance of the church of the, of the church is essentially the first element is the truth. The Christian must love the church because it is where God's word is published. In other words, it is where God's word is made known. It is where God's word is declared. It is where uh, the truth uh, is, is publicized. It is where the truth of God is publicized. It is where it is supported. It is where it is protected. And it is where it is guarded. And so this morning, the title of the message is simply, 
we must love the church because it is the guardian of the truth. It is the guardian of the truth. And so we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3 this morning to see how Paul sort of frames this idea about the church and about the element and the um, substance of the church being the truth. So 1 Timothy 3, uh, 14 through 16, we're going to look at that. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the practice of the church. We're going to look at the principle that informs the practice. And then we're going to look at the premise which the principle is predicated on. Does that make sense? We're going to look at practice. We're going to look at principle. We're going to look at premise. Okay? And this is how Paul kind of lays out this argument about the truth and about the relation of the truth being the substance of the church. So just for, uh, just quickly, um, First Timothy, I just want to give you a sense of quickly some literary and historical context here this morning. Timothy, as many of you know, is an apostle. I mean, not an apostle. He was an evangelist. He was a pastor. Um, essentially, he, he worked under Paul. Um, he was his assistant. And he essentially did what Paul had asked him to do. Um, he was commissioned to the church in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And um, he was commissioned there at Paul's behest. Um, he wanted to support Paul, and he wanted to uh, receive guidance from Paul as he went on these journeys. And we're provided for, in the first part of this letter, the reason why Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus. Look at this in verse 3 through 5. If you want to go back, chapter 1, 3 to 5, this is what Paul says. Now, keep in mind, Timothy is there in Ephesus, and Paul is writing this letter to him. This is Paul's letter. He's writing from prison. It's not the second letter, but the first. The second one, essentially, is Paul's last letter before he is beheaded. But this is the first letter that he writes to Timothy, and this is what he says. In verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia. So he's on his way to Macedonia, which is basically northern Turkey, I mean northern Greece. He says, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So essentially, this is the, the marching orders for Timothy when he's sent to Ephesus. What are they? To preach the word. Preach the good doctrine that is founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people would not devote themselves to myths. So they wouldn't devote themselves to things that are not true, to false teachings. So this is, the, 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 this is sort of the precedent uh, for Timothy's commissioning to Ephesus. Paul's instructions and his exhortations uh, in this letter include providing an example for others. So Paul is talking about providing an example for others. He's talking about personal conduct, public conduct, church conduct. He talks about qualifications for leaders. He talks about preaching and teaching the word. And he talks about refuting false teachings. These are sort of the, the backdrop of this letter. And this is what he is encouraging Timothy to do. So in first, uh, first Timothy chapter 3, uh, we're only going to read, it's just three verses. And I want us to see uh, how this informs us this morning with regards to why we must love the church and the substance of the church being the truth. He says this in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. 
But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. So the first thing I want us to see here uh, in this text is the idea of practice. He's addressing the practice or the conduct of the church. What is the reason that he's writing uh, this letter? It is also to admonish Timothy, to encourage Timothy, uh, to be able to teach to them what proper conduct and the manner of living that the church of God must be a part of. How is it that we are to conduct our lives? This is first and foremost what he is explaining. He says to them, I hope to come to you soon, but because I'm not there, I want to write these things to you because this is a matter of importance. This is something that cannot wait this is something that cannot wait for me to get there. But I want to, to, to explain these things to you so that you understand how it is that the church should live their life. So up until this point, he has been explaining that in verses, uh, in chapters 1 and 2. He essentially wants to impart guidance for Timothy in his absence and specifically to provide instruction and direction into matters of conduct within the church. So let's look at this for a moment. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This idea here of behave is a simple Greek word, and really what it means is to conduct oneself. It means to turn or to turn from one's course of conduct. Paul is encouraging Timothy, these instructions that I have given you, they are meant to inform the way the church must conduct their living affairs and how they must treat one another, how they must behave, or how, and there's this nuance of how they must change their behavior what it is, how they must conform to the truth of the gospel and how that, how that influences how they live. He says, I, I want them to understand how to conduct themselves in the household of God. This Greek word household is, is, is this word oikos, and it means basically a dwelling, which is a figurative understanding, but, but uh, a literal understanding, but figuratively, it's, it's a sense of a family. So when, when Paul is talking about the household of God, he's talking about uh, me and you. Like as, as we are gathered together, we're considered the household of God, a family, a local expression. We're also considered the universal household of God in that we are part of a larger family. And, and Paul is really referring to the household of God in universe, but there's also this personal application that we can see in this text and in this letter. It is really this idea of family and how we are related to, to, to one another by a set of like distinguishable characteristics, more so than anything that we have put our faith in Christ and we are indwelt by the Spirit and we want to live for and worship and, and bring glory to God in all that we do. And so this is what Paul is referring to here when he says, 
how is it that they are to behave as the household of God? And you may say to yourself, how does this connect with the truth? We will get there in a moment. But for Paul, he understood this. And for Christ, it was this, this idea that there's a prescribed manner of living. And not only that, that the gospel, when it is received and when it is lived out and when we understand the beauty of the good news of Christ, what is it supposed to do in us? It is supposed to be a transformative agent in us that affects sweeping change in our heart, right? That when we come to Christ, that we're no longer the same that we are new and that the gospel and the, the beauty and the power of the gospel is that it comes into the heart of the believer and it exacts sweeping change. Not just when someone believes. That's just the beginning. But throughout the Christian life, there is evidence of continual change and transformation and sanctification into the image of Christ. And that effect of the gospel, Paul says, this is so critical for you to understand because without the evidence of this change, that is the only identifying marker of the church. How we are set apart. And so for the Christian, there shall be a desire to live in conformity to the principles, to the instructions, to the patterns of godly living. Because it maintains the identity of the household of God. See, in the house, there's rules. There's instructions. I mean, all of you are part of a home, part of a household. You got this home, but you've got your personal home, right? And there's some rules, right? We got some rules in the house? Yeah, we got some rules in the house. We lay down the rules in the house for everyone that needs to abide by the rules, the instructions, and the pattern of living. We've got our own rules in our house. We've got a lot of different rules in our house. Many of them are not enforced as well as we want them to, but they're still there. There's a lot of grace to a certain degree, right? There's rules in the house. When, when I leave for work, we've got a routine. We've got rules. We've got, we've got a routine now where we, we have set up this, uh, this sort of order of who's going to watch Evelyn when daddy leaves and mommy's not ready to come upstairs yet. So each, each day, it's another person. It's another kid. It's another one. It's Grace, and it's Jack, and it's Rye. And then they all take their turns. And it's sort of a rule we've implemented kind of naturally, you know? So on Saturday mornings, we got a rule. What's the rule? You get Xbox time from 12 or so, from 9 to 1. That's your time. Do they abide by the rules? Never. I have to yell down the stairs, hey, time to get off the Xbox. Oh, yeah, Dad, we'll be done in a minute. 20 minutes later, hey, guys, it's time to get off. I mean, this Xbox, I mean, it's great, but, man, it is all-consuming, all-consuming. Right? So we, we've got rules. Who's going to sweep the table after dinner? Who's going to, sorry, under the table? Who's going to wipe the table down? Who's going to do the dishes? That's always me. That's mine. 
right? But we've got rules. We've got order. We've got ways in which the kids expect the house to work, right? We've got ways in which order in place, rules and instructions that the kids, and Sharon and I must follow, but really what I'm thinking about the kids is that it's a sense of honor and commitment and devotion to the home. That the manner in which they live in obedience to that reflects their desire to honor the home, to honor those who are stewarding the home, to honor the authority that is placed above them. The things that we set in place are important. They mean something. And so it is with the household of God. This is what Paul lays out in these previous chapters. This is what he says with regards to conduct. He says in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, those they must lead, Christians must lead a quiet and peaceful life of prayer. In verses two, or chapter 2, 8 and 9, he says, men should pray, lifting holy hands with anger and quarrel, without anger and quarreling. Also in that same verse, that women, when they come, would adorn themselves and be modest in their apparel, exhibit self-control. These are all instructions. These are all, you know, um, you know ways in which um, God has laid out the parameters and the patterns for the Christian to conduct their lives. In verse 3, uh, uh, sorry, in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled, to be respectable, to be hospitable, to be gentle. In that same verse, it says, do not be a drunkard, do not be violent, do not be quarrelsome, do not be a lover of money. Verse 8, chapter 3, do not be double-tongued, do not be greedy, do not be dishonest, do not be slanderous. And here's why, because these people that were making up the, Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, they were former pagan Gentiles. They were coming out of old spiritual practices. They, they were living and desiring the things of their flesh. They were living in sin. They were not living to righteousness, but they were allowing their humanness to really dictate the pattern of their life. And so it is with us when we come to Christ, we come from a point and a mode and a time where we are continually just thinking about ourselves. We're selfish. We're feeding our flesh. We're thinking about human needs and human desires only. And God comes in and changes that, and, and we're born again so that we cannot live to feed our sinful desire, but to live righteously before God. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, and it is this transformative agent, then you will leave your old life, and you will live to righteousness. Why? Because it is how Christ's church is set apart. This is what he says here. This is how you should behave in the household of God and check this out. He brings more language to this, which is what? The church of the living God. Interesting form there. Interesting words to, to, to use there. The church, he didn't just say the church of God. He said the church of the living God. Why, why is it that Paul may have chosen that term to phrase the church? The church of the living 
God is because God truly is the author of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is not a dead God. He is not a God that does not respond or does not hear. He is not a God that uh, cannot accomplish anything. He is a God that accomplishes everything by his perfect will. He's created all things. He's the author of life. He is truly the living God. See, these people came out of pagan temples, worshiping dead gods in lifeless temples. They worshiped gods that could do nothing for them. They idolized things that, had, that could do little of any consequence in their lives. There was no effect that these dead gods that they had worshipped could do for them. There was nothing that they could look to, even in the created order, and say, yeah, that was because of the God I worship. And so Paul is saying, you have been delivered out of these lifeless temples into the church of the living God, the one who has created all things. And so we see Paul lay down this pattern. We see Paul lay down um, for the church this idea of how we are to practice our lives. And then here we see the principle. How is it that this practice is achieved? It's through the principle. Look at what he says here in that second part. The church of the living God is what? A pillar and a buttress of truth. A pillar and a buttress of truth. This is the principle that Paul is working on in order for them to understand why it is that their conduct should be the way it is. Because their conduct should be in direct relation to the truth in which they believe. So Paul is saying, you must live this way based in this principle, that the church is the buttress and the pillar of the truth. Christ's church must be defended and must defend the truth. That is what Paul is saying, that if you are going to defend the truth, that your conduct must be in direct correlation and exhibit and exemplify the truth that you believe. So secondly, Christ's church must defend the truth. Paul really uses here some architectural language. He uses pillar and he uses buttress. These are building kind of architectural phrases and terms. And I think the reason why he does this is because he wants his readers to know. He wants the people in Ephesus to understand. He wants Timothy's church to understand this, that, that the church must be the supporter and the defender of the truth in the midst of a pagan society, that this church is placed there and has become the pillar and the buttress of the expression of the true living God and that we bring, give expression to the true living God by holding fast to the truth in the midst of a pagan society. Look at this word pillar. This word pillar is this word stulos. It's this word stulos. And it means simply a column or a prop or to support. It's to cause to stand. It's to make firm. It's to uphold or to sustain the authority and force of. Think about this for a moment. If you think about the church, 
and you think about how the church operates and what it is about the church, the substance of the church, that we must consider that is a motivating factor for us to love it. It is because the church sustains the authority and the force of the truth. No other institution on the earth does this. But it is the church alone who has the responsibility and the duty to uphold, to sustain, and to, and to substantiate the authority and the force of truth. That's essentially what Paul, I think, is getting at here. It is to support the veracity. There is no firmer stanchion designed for upholding the truthfulness of the gospel than the church. It is the heavenly underpinning. Think about this. It is, the church is this heavenly underpinning which provides sufficient care for God's word. That's what Paul is getting at, I think, here. The church, guys, is where the truth is set in place. It is where it takes its stand and it's where it makes its case to the world around it. And God has determined it to be this way. This idea of buttress, this word in the Greek really means kind of in similar terms as a pillar, but there's, there's a degree of nuance here that is a little different. It really means support or to be firm or to be immovable. But it also has this idea of guarding and protecting. So not only is the church supporting the truth and upholding the truth and strengthening the truth, but the church also is designed and responsible for guarding it and protecting it. The only translation that renders this word here, buttress, is, I guess, the one that I use. <laughs> If I look at other translations, this word is foundation or ground. But the ESV determines that buttress is really a great term to use here. And I think it's because possibly that, that, that there's this element of protection that the, that, the, that the church must exhibit when, with regards to the truth. So the church must promote and sustain it. The church is the firm and immovable structure designed to protect it. And in guarding the truth, the church is also guarding the sheep. The church is not just simply guarding and protecting the truth, but it's guarding and protecting the sheep by guarding and protecting the truth. Because in guarding the truth, we are guarding from the perversion of the truth. And this is a critical function for the church because sheep can be deceived. Sheep can be deceived by false teaching. The sheep can be deceived and the sheep can be led astray and there's more, I would say, there's more chance of a sheep being deceived or led astray from a teaching that comes from within 
than from a teaching that comes from outside. So oftentimes, sheep are led astray not by a false religion or not by a different religion, but they are led away from the true Christ by a false teaching of him. And so that is why it's so critically important for the church to guard and protect the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ because in protecting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and understanding uh, in the context of the word of God what it is that we are declaring, we can, as a church, guard and protect one another. And we are actually guarding and protecting one another from within. Listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 24, uh, verse 24. He says, For false Christs and prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You who have come into Christ, Christ says, he prophesies, hey, there are going to be people coming. These are going to be false Christs, false prophets. They're going to be uh, giving you a message. They're going to pretend like I sent them, but I have not sent them. And they will come and they will perform, listen to this, great signs and wonders. Look at that, great signs and wonders. You're going to look at their work and you're going to go, that's from God. He said, beware. They will lead you astray. So how critical is it to understand the truth of God's word and to be beholden to it and to show a fidelity to it and to be, as Karen said, anchored in the truth so that we are not susceptible to the deception of false prophets and teachers. Paul puts it like this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 and 21. He says, Oh, Timothy... <laughs> Guard the deposit entrusted to you. See, Timothy received something when he was born again, when he believed in Christ. He received the gospel and the good news and the beautiful news of salvation and how that is achieved through Christ. And Paul says to him, guard the deposit entrusted in you. Guard what God has put in you. Guard the message. Guard the truth. Why? So that you can avoid irreverent babble or empty chatter and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have, look at the word he uses, swerved from the faith. In other words, there were people that on the outside seemed to believe were part of the church, seemed to have received the gospel and were living it out. But he said they were carried away. They were carried away by what? Irreverent babble, empty chatter, false knowledge. When you think of this idea of irreverent babble, it's this, 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 this speaking of God in dishonoring terms. God has lost a sense of reverence in the church culture in some way. God and his holiness have been marginalized, diminished, and God is now just this intimate comforter. Now, I'm not saying God can't comfort us and, and, and meet our every need. He absolutely can. But there is, in some circles, and let me just say, an eroticization of God, right? He's spoken of in more erotic terms. 
that in holy terms, that he has been stripped of his holiness, his has been stripped of his otherness, and there's a sense of irreverent talk when it comes to God. God is diminished in his nature and character, and man is exalted at the same time. Empty chatter. People talking spiritual words and putting a bunch of spiritual words together, but they don't mean anything. See, when you veer from the word of God and you veer from proclaiming the truth, it is very easy to engage in empty, in vain, chatter. Because essentially, your thoughts about God and your speech about God are not informed by the truth of God, but your own opinion. And when men are left to their own opinion about God, they naturally will desert the truth about God. So the practice of godly character and conduct and the manner of living is saturated in the wellspring of the principles of God. That's what Paul is saying. He's making a correlation. He's saying, if your conduct is going to, if your conduct is going to exemplify the character of the church, then it must be rooted in the wellspring of God's word. That's why he says, this is how you must live because the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. If the church is to function as the, the publisher, as the protector, as the defender of the truth in combating all forms of heresy and false teaching, its conduct must be reflective of the truth that it guards. Its conduct must be reflective of the truth that it guards. Listen to what Timothy says in 1 Timothy 4, 16. He says this, Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. The conduct of our lives shall be shaped by the sum of what we believe. That's essentially what Paul is saying. The, the conduct of your life will be shaped by the sum of what we believe. So keep a close watch on yourself, on your life, on your conduct, and make sure it's reflective of what you believe, what you teach. And finally, the premise. It is on the grounds of the gospel of the truth of Christ that all of this is on. The truth makes plain and clear the mystery and the measure of godliness. It is Christ himself. And we see this in six features that Paul lays out. Essentially what Paul is saying is this. This is the essence of truth. This is the fundamental feature of the gospel that this church and every church must never diminish or discard but promote and strengthen and defend. All righteous living begins with the revelation of Christ. And this is what he does here. He says it in six different statements. The revelation of Christ. This is the mystery, he says in verse 16, of godliness. This is how we can measure godliness by Christ himself. So the, the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It is the principle of truth. 
that the, that the church must protect and guard and defend and support. And it is on the premise of Christ himself. Look at what he says. He was manifested in the flesh. Christ comes. God becomes man. The eternal word adorns flesh. And he was pleased to bring himself to the earth through his son. So Christ comes in the flesh. God comes in the flesh. And not only that, Christ is vindicated by the Spirit in this way that, that when Christ comes and he becomes sin for us and bears our transgressions, he's scorned as a sinner. Yet his sacrifice was accepted. He was vindicated. He was justified. He was pronounced just because the Spirit had raised him. His sacrifice was acceptable because of his sinless life when he comes and takes on flesh. And by that, we are now justified in Christ. This is the mystery of godliness. How is this to be? How is it that God comes as a man? It's a mystery. How is it that we are made righteous through one man's death? It's a mystery. And it's the mystery of godliness that is beholden in Christ himself. How is it that he can do this? How is it that this is the way it happens? How is it that I can be justified before God and loved by God and received by God, considering the life that I've led and the way I've transgressed and the way that I've rebelled against him time and time again? How is it that I can still be accepted by him? It is not of anything that I can do or have done. It is because Christ has been vindicated and justified by the Spirit in his raising from the dead. He comes and accomplishes the death and defeat of sin, the, the abolishing of death on our behalf for us. It is a mystery. He is seen by angels. In a sense, he was worshipped by them and ministered to by them. And they were present at his crucifixion and at his resurrection. This is truly a mystery. Proclaimed to all the nations. Salvation that was once reserved for a single nation has now been offered to every nation in the earth. Every people group. The dividing wall has been completely destroyed and crushed. There is nothing dividing God from his people. And that people group is not simply a nation he selected to be his people. But now it is a people, anyone who comes and believes in the gospel of Christ. It is the dividing wall completely obliterated. And it is believed on in the world. The proclamation and the spread of the gospel is not in vain. Christ did not come just to die and be resurrected for no reason, but this gospel is proclaimed in the nation, and it is the only means by which one receives salvation. This gospel does not come in vain, but it works out perfectly, and God performs and accomplishes every purpose in it by proclaiming it to the nations, and not only do the nations hear, but they believe. Not only did you hear, but you believed. And so Christ does not come in vain. And finally, he's taken into glory. This is the mystery of godliness. 
His ascension is the pinnacle of him being exalted by the Father. His ascension is the pinnacle of his authority. Him ascending to his rightful place shows us that he has all authority over everything. There is nothing that pierces the sovereignty of God. There is nothing that happens in your life that is acting in rebellion to the sovereignty of God. But all things come because God allows. All things come because God sovereignly does. Even in suffering, even in affliction, it is all purposed for God's glory. Because he has ultimate authority over all things. Nothing can be done. Nothing can be accomplished outside of his sovereignty. And so this is the mystery of godliness. This is the premise of truth. And this is the truth that affects our practice. The principle affects our practice and is premised in the truth and the godliness of Christ. So why must we love the church? Simply this. The church is the only earthly institution charged with promoting, supporting, guarding, and protecting the truth. Every Christian participates in these activities. Every Christian participates in these activities, committing their hearts and minds to the principles of the truth on the premise of Christ, producing the practice of God honoring righteous living. And that's what Paul is saying. That is why we are to love the church. Because we desire to support and guard the truth, and we desire that our manner of living be informed by the principles of it. And I would venture to say that if you are a Christian and you are not in the body of Christ, if you are not participating, if you are not committed, if you are not devoted, then the work of God is hindered because it is in the church where we see these things take place. It is in the church where we see the truth of God's word declared. And it is the truth of God's word that leads to the effective change in the life of every Christian. So if you want to be transformed, if you want your conduct to be God-honoring, if you want your manner of living to be unto the glory of Christ, there is no option but to be a part of the church. Amen? Amen. Let's stand this morning.